0: We open our Bibles tonight to John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 18, reading the first 14 verses of John 18. These events take place on Thursday evening of the Passion Week, just before the next day, Good Friday. The children remember that on Thursday evening, the Lord gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem with his disciples to eat the last Passover, to institute the Lord's Supper, to send Judas into the night to betray him. And then the Lord has left the upper room and come to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he has prayed concerning the cup of the wrath of God that God had given him to drink. The verse, uh, verse one takes up the narrative at that point. John 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then Then asked he them again, whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which was spoke, which he spake, of them which which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said unto Peter, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captains and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We read to that point. We ask God to write his word on our hearts. Our text is the verse 12 and the first words of verse 13. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, next Sunday morning, God willing, when before the Lord's Supper, we turn again to the form for the Lord's Supper and begin to read that second part as to the meaning and significance of the Lord's Supper. We will read together these words that Jesus Christ bore for us his lifelong, the wrath of God. Under which we should have perished everlastingly and then these words especially when the weight of our sins and the wrath of God pressed out of him the bloody sweat in the garden where he was bound that we might be freed the form is looking exactly on the words of our text Then the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away. The form of the Lord's Supper is teaching us the gospel in those words that Jesus Christ at that point was bound over by God to bear the curse and the wrath that is owed to our sins in order that he might put that wrath away and deliver us, break those bonds, that held us in condemnation and guilt, and that he further, by breaking those bonds, has opened to us, out of the prison of our sins, a new life, a life of obedience, and a life of godliness. John, the disciple John, is the only one of the four gospel narratives who specifically says to us that Jesus Christ at that point when he was arrested at the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane was bound. He was tied with ropes. Whether those ropes were around his wrists in front of him or behind him or whether he was simply bound so that around his torso his hands were to his sides, we are not told. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that they took hold of him, but they do not tell us that he was bound. John tells us that he was bound. When the Bible tells us he was bound, it does not mean to tell us that now they had overpowered him, that his enemies had finally subdued him, that now they held the upper hand over him, that now they could drag and do whatsoever they wanted, drag him away and do whatsoever they wanted to him. This was not the case. And the whole text as we read it plainly shows that this was not the case. As Reverend Grease spoke at the last part of his sermon this morning about Samson being a picture of the Christ, then we also remember Samson when the men of Judah came to give him over to the Philistines. Three thousand men of Judah came And they bound Samson with two new cords. But when the Spirit of God came upon Samson, he broke those cords as if they were wax. It is not the hemp, it is not the ropes that are binding Jesus at this point. What is binding Jesus is the cords of his love that he will now be bound over to Our condemnation justly deserved of God, and that He, with His saving grace and through His own blood, would free us from our bondage of sin and work in us a new and holy life. He was bound that we might be freed. He was bound over so that the guilt which is ours would be placed upon him, the guilt that would drag us to hell in order that we might be released from its power and live to him. This is what we must see tonight as we follow him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he freely gives himself over to be bound and to go to the cross. What would you have reported if you had witnessed the arrest in the garden if you were an eyewitness of all that had transpired in the garden of Gethsemane from his prayers to the coming of that band up the sides of the mount of Olivet and all that transpired what would you have written about that event the chief priest perhaps late that night would have written in his journal at last we got him the Roman captain, of which we read in our text, who was required by Caesar Augustus to keep a record of his arrests, perhaps would have written it this way. 14th of the month, Nisan, around 1130, quarter to 12, took one prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth, But I never witnessed anything like this. We didn't take him. Very plainly, he gave himself to us. He made us all fall backwards. But what do you record as the one for whom he shed his blood? He was bound where I should have been bound in my condemnation that he might free me from that condemnation and he might liberate me from being a slave to sin so that now my soul is guiltless tonight. I don't bear that guilt and my soul now by his power desires to serve him. Or if we wanted to write it the simplest way we could, what do we see here? we would write it this way. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We look for a few moments in tonight bound that we might be freed. We have only two points. The majority of our time will be on our willing substitute. And then secondly, the application that we are now bound to him in a living sacrifice. If there's one thing that the Holy Spirit wants to make obvious, one wonderful, astounding thing that the Holy Spirit wants us to get and to understand is that Jesus Christ was in complete control in his own arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was in charge, that it was not his captors. Who orchestrated and controlled the events that as I said they did not take him but he gave himself the Holy Spirit wants to again point out to us the gospel that Jesus blood is not going to be shed but it's going to be poured out it's going to be deliberately poured out that his death is willing it is voluntary that they had not taken him but he had given himself, that, they, that he did not fall down before them, but that he laid down his life in our place. And there's no doctrine that is so beautiful and so dear to our hearts as the fact that Jesus is our willing substitute. Psalm 40, verse 7, Jesus in the Old Testament foretelling his coming, says in, in verse 6, Sacrifice and offering thou dost not desire. Then said I, lo, I come, I come in the volume of the book of the law. It is written of me, I delight to do thy will. Jesus is saying, I'm the true sacrifice, but I'm not the sacrifice of a bull or goat who needs to be pulled and forced. Smelling, even an animal smells blood and will not go near that altar. I am not bound by root God does not need to get something in my nose to pull me to that sacrifice but I come I delight to do God's will I will lay down my life of myself John 10 17 through 18 therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I may take it again my father loves me because I lay down my life willingly no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. He's a willing substitute. God was not pushing him. They were not pulling him. Jesus was willingly going to the place, the only place where the atonement for your sins could be made and he was doing that in love for his father and love for us there are three we'll follow it now in three steps to see this willing substitute in verses 1 through 6 we're going to see that it's very voluntary voluntary means of his own will without outward compulsion. Number, then in verses 7 and 9 we're going to see that it's substitutionary and then in verses 10 through 12 we'll see that he does this alone. That Jesus is a willing substitute is seen first of all in that he voluntarily of his own will went to the Garden of Gethsemane intentionally We know that he went to the garden of Gethsemane intentionally because there he would pray to his heavenly father about the cup that the father had given to him to drink. And he would pray three times, let this cup pass from me while his disciples, Peter, James, and John would sleep. So he certainly went there for that purpose. But he went there also to that garden, not only to wrestle with God in prayer, but he went there exactly as the obedient Lamb of God. He arises from the upper room and he goes forth with his disciples to the the Garden of Gethsemane and we are told in verse 2 of our text he did this because Judas knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. On that night, when Judas is out, reporting to the chief priests, he knows. He knows that we are trying, that I am betraying him. We need to act tonight. We need to get together and we need to go get him now. In that night, when Jesus knows that Judas is organizing a band to come and to capture him, Jesus is not hiding. He's not thinking, well I'm going to lead them at least on a a chase through the dark streets of Jerusalem. I'm going to make them work for it to catch me first. But he goes to the place where Judas would look first. Judas knew that it was his custom often when he was in Jerusalem at night to take his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, the top of the Mount of Olives, to the Olive Grove where he would pray and speak to them. He has said to Judas in the upper room, what thou doest do quickly. And then knowing that Judas now is going to organize the party to come and capture him, he goes to the very place, first place, that Judas is going to look. He's not trying to hide himself from them. He knows that they're coming. After he prays the third time, he says to his disciples in Matthew, arise, let us be going. He that betrayeth me is at hand. There was no hide and seek, no trying to buy a little bit more time. But he organizes his own arrest. And the place where he will be arrested. His willingness is not only that he goes to that place, but when at last the mob has come up the sides of the mountain, he deliberately walks forward and goes forth to see them. Jesus, verse 4, therefore knowing that all things that should come upon him went forth. He went out to meet them, his disciples behind him. He's not hiding in some nook or dark spot in the Garden of Gethsemane. He approaches them. He confronts them. We read in our text that Judas had indeed gone to the chief priests, to the temple, telling them that he knows. And they immediately begin to piece together what they think is a sufficient force, a large force, a great multitude, Matthew says, a band of men, temple guards and officers of the temple and a Roman captain. A captain is higher than a centurion. He's a, he controls a number of centurions. So it could be a, a band of soldiers of up to three, 400 men And they have weapons, and they have swords, and they have spears. They have lanterns, and they have torches, flaming torches over their head. So that when they come up that mountain, the whole side of the mountain is now lit up. There's a multitude of people all coming to the top of the Mount of Olivet to arrest one man. And Jesus, in his calm majesty, with his 11 disciples behind him, comes to the very gate of the garden where everything bottlenecks together, and he steps forward and walks to his captors. He's not hiding. The judgment has come. He said eternally, lo, I come, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will he is willing and then it's seen that he is in control and the absolute power that he shows that he has over all who have come to arrest him and exposing their weakness and their folly and he makes them look silly He takes control by his voice as the eternal son of God whom seek ye and the leaders the captain the officers and Judas Judas was there up to the front he had already Matthew and Mark tells us that Judas had given a signal to this captain that the man who I kiss is the man that you need to lay hold of quickly so Judas is already planted that hypocritical kiss on the cheek of our Lord Jesus Christ and everyone is standing around waiting to know what the next thing is to do and Jesus says whom seek ye and they say to him Jesus of Nazareth and he says I am and you noticed as we read the chapter that the word he is in italics he didn't say literally I am he but he simply said I am, I am, Jehovah. He identified himself as the Son of God in flesh, as the eternal God. They hated that when he would identify himself as God's eternal Son. And the moment he said, I am, six, seven hundred people, men, various ranks in life, many of them holding a torch, others with a spear, a shield, a sword. They fell backward, not stumbling backwards as we do, bending the knees, putting our arm back, arm back to, to shield us from the fall, but the word must be translated that they fell back over as a dead man falls. They fell as a dead man would fall, straight back, we see, a certain humor almost. I often thought about those torches, that if the man in front of me was holding a torch, that the torch would have fallen on my stomach and perhaps my backside would have fallen upon another man's sword. It was was almost comical. They are made to look silly. A great commotion takes place until finally, They get back on their feet and they ask. He asks them again, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes forward to meet them. Jesus was not overcome. There is no power of man that is able to take him. He did not go to the cross because they outsmarted him. They outmaneuvered him. He did not go there because things just went bad. He was a well-intentioned man, a teacher, and things just went the wrong way. No, he came to willingly give his life. God is saying the eternal Son of God willingly in the flesh gave himself to that place where your sins would be judged on him, knowing what was in front of him. Willingly, he did this. So that brings us to substitutionally. He is not only voluntary, but he's acting as the substitute. And this explains why he is so willing to do this. He is doing this because Jesus Christ was at that point the substitute, the one put in the place of others, in the place of sinners. This is what is behind his willingness. This is why he will willingly go to the cross because he is standing there in the place of others. He will go to a judgment that belonged to others, not to himself. And this is the beauty. There's nothing so beautiful about the gospel as substitutionary atonement. He is not a martyr willing to die for his beliefs. He is not a revolutionary who's so wrapped up in his cause that he'll even die for it. But he is the Son of God willingly putting himself in the place that the elect of God justly are in and putting them putting himself in that place to take away that judgment that the elect of God were were deserving and to give us the opposite the fellowship and the love of God he was there to be a substitute and so the crowd when they're back on their feet he says whom seek ye and they say Jesus of Nazareth and he says to them again I am if therefore ye seek me let these reference to the eleven disciples let these go their way that the saying might be fulfilled which he which Jesus spake of them which thou gavest me have I lost none the Lord first of all provides for the physical safety of the eleven disciples his word is authoritative we can't comprehend it what what captive has the right to command those who arrest him what to do with the others who are around him but he power his words are powerful and his word he needs only say it and his word protects them let these go their way they do not arrest any of the eleven disciples he watches over them But those words, let these go their way, again, is but a picture of the security and the safety that he will give to all those who are given to him in the death on the cross. He says concerning you and I, guilty and condemned sinners, let these go their way. They are free from this condemnation. They are free from the condemnation because I will step willingly into the condemnation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a substitutionary atonement. John remembers the things that Jesus had said repeatedly about the fact that he had come in the place of those whom the Father had given to him out of a sheer electing grace. John 6, 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And he had just prayed in John 17, verse 2, and as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. In but a few moments, the 11 disciples would all forsake him and flee. But he he is the one who says, I am the one who provides their covering from the judgments of God. He is bound that we might be freed, given to him eternally, freely, and now he takes our place that we might be free. Voluntarily, as a substitute, and then the last thing the Holy Spirit wants us to see about our willing substitute is that he is alone, that he does this salvation Alone. The passage in Isaiah 63 verse 3 has always been a favorite of mine just the opening words of Isaiah 63 verse 3 a prophetic word of Jesus Christ Isaiah 63 verse 3 I have trodden the winepress alone and of the people There was none with me, the pressing of the wine press, the pressing of the grapes to bring forth wine, a sign of undergoing punishment. I trod that alone. And none of us were with him. Of ourselves, we all forsook him. It was Jesus exclusively. Who is bound under our condemnation no one goes with him and that's what must be proven with the whole incident of Peter and his sword Peter sees all of this and now sees that they're coming forward to bind his arms bind his hands and to bind him and Peter says not so fast and it was Peter who had one of the two swords and Peter must have just rushed forward and there was the servant of the high priest, Malchus. Probably the high priest had sent his servant, Malchus, to bring back to him a report of everything that happened so he had inched his way up forward to observe and he's the first one that Peter encounters as he's rushing forward to defend Jesus and he simply swings his sword. Malchus quickly ducks, his ear comes off, And Jesus again calmly picks up the ear and puts it back on Malchus and tells Peter, put up your sword. They that use the sword will die by the sword. The cup that my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter is not contributing to his Lord. He's not helping his Lord. He's an obstacle to his Lord in his work. He's not helping Jesus, he seeks to hinder Jesus. Jesus, according to Matthew, says, do you not think that I cannot pray now to my Father and that he would presently give me 12 legions of angels, 12,000 angels? But then how shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be this way. He went to the cross alone. Our salvation is not a salvation of Jesus and of something else, of some other aid, of something that we bring to that salvation, something that must come from another source. Salvation comes from one source one alone can do this work, there can be no contributions, there are no contributions that could save of any sort, from angels to man to anything, anything that we have done. Salvation comes from one source, Jesus Christ, who goes alone to the cross to face the condemnation that we deserved. He was bound that we might be freed. And what bound him? Well, it was not those ropes. He was bound by something that cannot be broken. And that's the love of God. The love of God who gave him for us, for his people. Now, beloved, how do we respond tonight before this gospel? Respond we must. The truths of the gospel, even through a weak instrument is being made known to us. And respond, you must. God is describing to us the cross. That there was a judgment that awaited us. That there was wrath due to our sins that we deserved. That we carried a heavy load of guilt that bound us to condemnation, that we could not detach ourselves, we could not break its bonds, and that God gave his own only begotten righteous son to come under that guilt and to break that guilt in his own payment through his own blood and to release us from the bondage of our sin and to give us freedom to belong to him and a new life, a life of repentance, fighting against our sin, a life that seeks to glorify him. How do we respond to this well-known, simple, indisputable gospel? Does the Holy Spirit in this assembly tonight cry out in the words of Lamentations chapter 1 verse 12, is it nothing to you all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow what is done unto me. Is it nothing? Is it simply information? Is it simply the opening at least to our minds that we understand what is substitutionary atonement? what the Bible teaches about the death of Christ is that all that it is or is it this that by the foolishness of the preaching of this text the Holy Spirit works in your heart and opens your soul and is binding you binding you with those cords of love to him so that now you say I no longer live, but I belong to him. And that the old attachments and the loves of sin that are in our hearts, in our pride in this world, that we feel them being cut away by the power of his death and love. And we feel ourselves bound to him, to worship him, to praise him, to offer our life in sacrifice to him. How do we respond? It is by the grace of God that when we examine ourselves, we respond this way. First of all, I brought this on him. I made this necessary. My sins. My sins, yes, by God's wonderful grace, giving me the knowledge of those sins, working that in my heart. I know that I am given that by grace, but nevertheless it was my sin that he needed to pay for. And that it was my sin that bound him, that brought him down to the eternal burning and wrath of God. It should have been on me. It justly should have been on me. I should have suffered them. I should have suffered them in hell. The warrant that went out went out for me. And it was a just warrant and instead of it being served on me, it was served on him whom God bound in my place. Justice for my sin. I like to put that sin away, I like to deny it. Justice went to look for me are you aware that justice, the justice of God, is going to look for you? you can get away, we can get away from the courts of this world and the consequences of sin. We cannot get away from justice, God's justice that comes to look for me. And when that justice came to look for me, God in his mercy gave one who said, let him go his way. I am he that has come to do God's will. Put that curse owed to me that debt on me, the son of God. Number two. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we see not only our own sin and unworthiness, but we go on to see and to rejoice that it was his strength, not mine, that delivered me from my sin and condemnation and brought me to freedom. It was his strength. It was not an angel's strength, angels weren't of any power there because it must be a man who must represent me, it's not my deeds. My deeds, my good works, as important as they are, as they are the expression of my love and devotion for Jesus, the very purpose now of my life is that I walk in all good works. My good works weren't the power to release me from my sins, from my condemnation. But it was his work alone, his spirit within me, his spirit to give me repentance and a new life. And then, number three, my sin, he paid. And number three, I am bound to him. I am bound to him by the power of his work and by the power of his grace. So that now, be it in the beginning form that I must always struggle in this and I must have this more and more. Nevertheless, I sincerely and I willingly want to live to him as a sacrifice of praise. Psalm 118, verse 29, God is the Lord, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords even to the horns of the altar. There the figure is that for an offering of thanksgiving, an offering of praise to God, they would bind that animal with ropes to the altar so that the animal was consumed in this offering to God of praise. It's a reference there in Psalm 118 to our lives Romans chapter 12 verse 1 to be an offering of praise and thanksgiving. And the idea is that His grace in Christ binds us to such an offering that our lives become an altar on which everything is expended to praise and glorify Him. That our life is not an altar to self. Everything in my life it's about me that our life is not an altar to sin that we blindly follow and give ourselves over to sin my life is not an altar to covetousness to seek more of the world but our lives now are consumed by his love to be an altar of praise that we be so to speak burnt up and burnt out in the joyful Praise of his name. Take my heart, says the hymn. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. Or as the Catechism, Lord's Day 32, teaches us, that the whole of my conduct, the whole of my life, be an offering of gratitude unto him. that I will not forsake him, that I will not deny him, that I henceforth will live no more to myself, but unto him who gave himself to me, that I will be bound joyfully and willingly to his people, to his church, to the assembly of the saints, that with a holy obligation, I will love the people of God and seek their good that I will not forsake my testimony of him and my witness of him when I am in the world, that I will live more and more to him. This is the response. The response of those by his grace for whom he was bound, given over willingly to our condemnation. The response of the elect is, I, be it a small principle, I testify that I am bound to him in deepest, sweetest chords of love and gratitude to him, so great a savior demands all that I am. Let us examine ourselves. Let us see this wonderful, beautiful Savior. And let us more and more forsake ourselves and live wholly to him. Amen. Lord, we prayed that even though it comes to the words of a man that nevertheless we might hear the very word of God and that our souls may truly stand before Calvary and see exactly what happened, that rather than we should perish under thy just judgments, thou didst give to us a substitute, Jesus Christ. And that now, our debt paid, our guilt vanquished, we might live wholly to him. In Jesus' name, amen.